0: I ran into a friend last week who told me that he was taking his family to Rome for Easter, and so he asked me if I had any ideas about where he ought to go to church for Easter Sunday. I've only been to Rome once, and so I listed for him my favorite churches, but told him maybe check with the concierge at the hotel to see where a church will not be so crowded and might have good music and all the things one looks for. After I left him and came home, I remembered something. And so I emailed him, and I said, Well, not for Sunday, but certainly while you're in Rome, be sure and visit the Capuchin Church of Santa Maria della Concezione." The church itself is interesting, but what really sets St. Mary's apart is its basement, its crypt. The crypt is decorated, would be one word. On walls, uh, there are monuments and altars, and over the doors... Everywhere one looks there are elaborate designs there are crosses and and shapes from Christian theology and history and there's texture and tone and contrast in one place there's the Franciscan coat of arms in another there are shapes of flowers and they're all made of bones <laughs> they're made of human bones Human Bones, Bones of Former Capuchin Friars. It's a very strange place. It seems that way back in 1631, there was a cardinal who was also a Capuchin friar, and he ordered that the remains of thousands of Capuchin friars be exhumed and transferred from one friary to this particular church crypt, And for whatever reason and for whatever motivation, a few of the friars decided to get creative. And so the bones of their brother friars began to be arranged along the walls. As prayers were said in the crypt chapels, one would contemplate life and death, one's own life, one's own death. And before long, it became the custom that the friars would bury their own dead there, as well as the bodies of poor Romans who couldn't afford another burial place. Between 1500 and 1870, some 4,000 bodies found their eternal rest at the Church of St. Mary of the Immaculate Conception. Today, there's a fantastic museum at the church that explains all of this as much as it can be explained, and takes one through the crypt and guides one through the few hundred years of Capuchin history. So if you go to Rome, you must visit. What strikes me about that church and its crypt, and just the whole thing, is how vastly different from death people looked at things. In our culture in 2019, it's more often the case that, that someone dies and then at some point they're cremated and then when it's uh, convenient for the family, there might be a memorial service and it's all looking ahead and giving thanks for life and and then people sort of forget where the ashes are actually kept. We've moved a long way from the various rituals of death and remembrance. We all approach death differently. We approach the death of Jesus Christ differently. Just as one may approach it in one way and others think that person is a little strange, so we may approach it in our own way we can look at the passion that we've just heard and and notice the different ways people respond to the impending death of Christ. Poor Simon Peter often gets criticized by the church for first his enthusiasm and second his denial. It's Peter's zeal that pulls a sword in the garden and slices off the ear of a soldier that same Peter who later denies knowing Jesus or having anything to do with him. In the events leading up to the death of Jesus, there's Pontius Pilate who sees what's happening and is afraid. He's afraid because he wonders if perhaps there really is something special about Jesus. And yet Pilate is also afraid because of the the messy politics all around him. The death of Jesus is a complication for him. It's troubling, and it's a difficult item on the agenda. It has to be dealt with so that things can move on, so that he can move on. The religious leaders have their own view of Jesus and his impending death. They see it as necessary for the purity and the holiness of what they understand religion to be. He's a danger to orthodoxy. He's a danger to the status quo. He's a danger to the way things are. The soldiers see the death of Jesus as business of usual. Underpaid and poor themselves, the soldiers look for what they can get out of it, and they divide his clothes Mary Magdalene and other women and friends there are so much like the faithful mothers and spouses and friends who understand and experience death as a part of life. Practical things have to be taken care of. Prayers said, loved ones comforted, grieving people fed and taken care of. They're probably like some of those mothers and grandmothers and friends we see too often on the news, that when there's a shooting of some young person, you see the family member who's so worn down by the violence and the mundaneness of the whole affair that they simply get the nice clothes out, cook the casserole, and go to church. And then there's Mary, the mother of Jesus. There's John, the beloved disciple. They somehow approach the cross with an openness and a vulnerability that allows them to help each other to form a new community, a community in which we follow. And so how do we follow? What about us? How do we approach the cross of Jesus Christ? Probably with some hesitation, we might not know exactly what to say or think or do. There may be doubt, as we find it difficult to believe all the details or even maybe the scope of the whole story. We're not sure about what we hear and see. There may be relief in some ways, relief that we could be embarrassed about, but relief that the ordeal is over, just like relief when a death happens in our lives. That long way of the cross, the long way of pain, the trail of tears has ended. It's horrible, but at least it's over. And there could well be confusion. What does it mean? What does it mean for tomorrow? What does it mean for us to live beyond? Good Friday can be a difficult day, not only because we're invited by the church to confront the death of Jesus Christ, but because in doing so, by drawing close to the death, we also confront the issue of death itself. We confront the issue of death of loved ones. We confront the prospects of our own death. And yet, the major message of the day is that death is not what it appears to be. It's not the death of Christ, and it's not the death of us. The great spiritual writer Evelyn Underhill writes about how first appearances can be deceiving. She talks about how a friend might suggest to you that you check a certain church, maybe this church, that it has beautiful stained glass windows, for example. And so you approach the church from the outside, but you look and all you see are a bunch of gray windows that all look sort of the same. They're kind of dull and dark and thick and maybe a little bit grubby. But then, as Underhill puts it, when you open the door and go inside, leave the outer world, enter the inner world, There's a universal light that floods through the windows and and bathes us in their color and beauty and significance, showing us things of which we had never dreamed, a loveliness that lies beyond the fringe of speech. She goes on to say that this is a lot like how we come to understand God. We can't understand God from the outside Not for an instant, but understanding only comes when we enter into the presence and the fellowship and the relationship and the love of God. And so in order to understand the cross of Christ, what it means that he has died and risen again for us, we need to enter in as fully as we can. The cross is not what it first appears The tomb is not what it first appears. Death is not what it first appears. On Good Friday, through prayer, through pain, through hope, and through tears, we are invited to enter in, to enter into the life of God in Christ, to go with Him into the tomb and together live in hope so that new life may come tomorrow. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.